0: Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps.
1: Okay, folks, uh, welcome to another episode of Latte with a Lawyer. I'm your host, Jonathan Brickman. And this afternoon, we have uh, Franci- Francine Tone. I'm sorry from uh, northern california and uh, welcome to the show
0: thank you jonathan i'm happy to be here
1: yes I'm, I'm glad to have you here and again i apologize for mispronouncing your name and i just said it two seconds before today um anyway so uh it's it's the afternoon but um again keeping with the theme of the show latte with a lawyer what's your favorite morning beverage to get black to?
0: coffee straight up
1: black <laughs> coffee all right good excellent I think that says a lot about people, the kind of uh, the way they drink their coffee. What do you think?
0: It seems to be. uh, I even hear people who like to put things in it, but will drink the black coffee often because um, I don't know if maybe they think it's a more of a pick me up. I just like black coffee because I've always used it because it's the easiest and fastest way to get the coffee.
1: Easiest. Yeah. Well, I have a theory about like people that like spicy food versus not. I think there's definitely a, it's correlated with personality type.
0: Could be, could be. I don't know what you think of spicy food. Cause I like spicy food too. <laughs>
1: I like spicy food. So are you, uh, are you passionate about things? Maybe get hot tempered or quick tempered at times?
0: I'm slow to I have a slow fuse, but when it goes off, it goes off pretty explosively, which I try not to. That's why I'm glad I have a slow fuse. But I am passionate about many things and I can get kind of obsessive about new things that I try that I really love. Um, you know, right now, surfing, my stand up paddleboard in Hawaii is my current passion. And I will spend hours, eight, 10 hours on the water doing that.
1: Wow. They call that OCD, right?
0: Some people say that I just am <laughs> extremely focused. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I understand. I'm kind of that way now about golf these days. I'm like obsessed with it, like getting better, which is, like punishment, because it's very hard to get better at that.
0: That's what I hear. So that's why I pick surfing. It's hard, but I don't think it's as hard to get better. at. Okay,
1: good, good. So um, um, I know you mentioned that you're not doing travel work. So uh, tell tell me about uh, what kind of uh, work you do these days.
0: So, I am an appellate law specialist certified by the California State Bar Board of Specialization. So, I do appeals exclusively. Okay. I used to be a trial lawyer a long time ago. And uh, which, so the kind of work that I do is I handle criminal defense appeals that are sent to me by the state. I handle civil appeals, mostly involving real estate or business and uh, dissolution appeals. So long as it involves property issues, I don't handle custody and um, child support issues. But usually when there's a battle over property, division of community property, those kinds of things. And uh, as a part of my appellate practice, I also advise trial attorneys on how to set up their cases to either avoid the appeal or uh, set up the case so that they have a preserved issue for appeal in the event their case does go up to appeal.
1: Okay, interesting. So, um, okay. So you did, you did trial work. What kind of trial work did you do? Uh,
0: well, when I first became a lawyer, I dabbled in a lot of things, but primarily real estate and business was the work that I was in. And um, so that's where my trial work was primarily focused.
1: On the plaintiff or defense side, or both?
0: It both, both. Yeah. And often we were, I'm um, going to say it was both. Uh, we represent a lot of people where, in real estate this was way back in the late 80s 90s there was a lot of litigation over purchases of real property and non-disclosure of defects and a lot of that was going on here in California so i was involved in some of those cases but um and then my husband has been practicing law much longer than me and i helped work with him on a lot of foreclosure deed of trust foreclosure cases as well so i had I worked in foreclosure law as well as real estate buy sell, and um, but I just kind of got over the whole trial process and the litigating and the fighting with lawyers. And um, I did appeals from the very beginning and decided to go exclusively that way. It's a it's a gentler kind of practice.
1: Okay. Well, you don't have to go. Well, you're going in front of what the a judge.
0: Well, you get one court appearance per case, technically, and it's the end of all the briefing. And it's usually in California, it's a three-judge panel that you appear before. Okay. One justice, it's three appellate court justices, and one is the lead justice for the case. And then the three of them concur or they they all have to be involved in the decision. And uh, it's basically research writing in one argument. And I love it because... The record is what it is, you know, whatever they preserved in the trial court, they did. If they didn't preserve it, it's not there. And it's really parsing out the legal issues in a case. You're arguing about the law, not so much the facts. And you're hoping that your client, whichever side you're on, your client has done a good job or their attorney did a good job of laying out all the necessary facts to be able to prove their case on the appellate level as well.
1: What percentage of appellate cases actually prevail? Well,
0: right. When you're looking at it from the appellant's point of view, this is the person who has filed the appeal and they want to change the decision of the trial court. Um, I would say about 15% across the board might have a better solution, better result than they had when they came out of the trial court. And I say that 15% includes... Uh, a minor adjustment even. Maybe too much interest was charged and so they get a reduction in the interest against the judgment. So it can be minor changes as well as complete overturning of judgment. It's a small percentage. Uh, I often represent the respondent in these cases where somebody else's appeal. And the reason for that is uh, I can take a look at the basics of a case, the judgment, statements of decision, some basic things. And I can tell a client if they're gonna absolutely lose if they appeal. I can't always tell, you know, there's a chance, if there's a chance of possibly prevailing, I would never tell a client, you know, you're absolutely gonna lose. But so many cases when they've gone to trial, they have presented their evidence and the judge or jury has looked at everything and they've come to their decision. And I know what the rules are at the appellate level, what the restrictions are, Mm. given those restrictions, um, most of these cases, nothing's going to change when they when they go to appeal. And I've told, turn away a lot of cases, telling clients, save your money, move on with your life, because you can pay me a lot of money and you're not going to change the result. So it, wouldn't it be better to keep your money and move on? And that's difficult for people, but I think that's the best advice you know, to give those people.
1: So how does the process work? So uh, attorney represents a client, they they go to trial, they don't prevail and they want to appeal it. And then you come in. Who's your client? Is it the attorney or the the client or both? The
0: client is my, my client and the attorney usually is the referring party. They will oh, they refer, refer the to client you. to me. Right. Okay. They refer them, you know, they refer them to me as the appellate attorney. I usually come in with the trial attorney so that if there is a change and it has to go back to the trial court the trial attorney is still part of the case they take over at that point i'm only involved at the appellate level and uh, but the client is my client not the attorney
1: okay so if it's if you're on the plaintiff side and it's contingency and the trial attorney doesn't win there's no money out of pocket right and then you come in and then you win the appeal how do you get paid
0: My fees are based on an hourly basis. I don't do contingency appeals. Okay. And so even if you have an attorney who took, let's say, accident cases are often on contingency basis, there's a percentage. And oftentimes, you know, if they don't win, there's no fees. Right. Because there's no percentage of zero is zero. But if they want to appeal and they hire me, the client will have to pay me on an hourly basis. I don't take appeals on contingencies. And this is another reason why at the very beginning of the appellate process, I do a very thorough review of the case and really look at the hard part of the appeal that can be very determinative of the outcome Mm. and extremely and brutally honest with clients about what are your chances if you take it up on appeal. And if I can clearly say to them, nothing's going to change. Um, Don't spend any more money because that's money out of their pocket. They're not going to get that back in those cases. You know, very few cases, there are attorney's fees given to parties.
1: Right. Interesting. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, I mean, tell me about how you got started and how you ended up in this, just the whole journey. Tell me how you got started. Mm -hmm.
0: It, well, my journey started when I was um, actually a, a young child, when well, I became an attorney. Um, and uh, it's kind of a, a sad story at the beginning. I, I was uh, born to a Japanese mother and an American Caucasian father in Japan. Okay. And when I was one, my mother passed away. And my father left, and I was left with my Japanese grandmother. Oh. And she raised me until I was five years old. And then when I was five, my father never returned to pick me up. So she put me up for adoption so that I could be raised as an American. Because being only half Japanese, it would have been difficult for me in Japan, uh, where it's a very homogeneous society. And I really stood out, not being very Japanese. So my grandmother felt that I would be better off being raised as an American. And uh, And so I was adopted. Pardon?
1: In this melting pot here. Exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I was adopted by a family who had no children. The father was a Caucasian American military man, and the mother was um, a Japanese national from Japan. And um, so I was adopted at five. Moved into a, a military housing development in Japan. And I had a few friends. And one summer oh, you were
1: adopted in Japan. I see. Yeah. Okay. Gotta go. Yes.
0: And uh so I made some friends right after I moved. In with my new adopted family. I did not know I was adopted at that time. I just thought my parents had come pick me up. I didn't know anything. And one hot summer night, you know, afternoon, we're out playing. And if you've ever been to Japan, summers are hot, they're muggy. And back then we could hit, you have the smell of DDT in the air because they would have these DDT trucks come through. So we're out playing in those conditions when all of a sudden my friends started running circles around me going, your mother is dead. Your mother's dead. Your mother's dead. Your mother is dead. And that went on until I couldn't take it anymore. Ran home crying. My mother said, what's wrong? And I said, they're saying you're dead. And that after, that evening, my parents sat me down and I learned the truth that my mother was dead and I had just been adopted. And um, my adoptive father spent considerable time that night telling me how special I was because they had chosen me. I wasn't just born into the family. So I went to bed that night feeling pretty special. A few weeks later, my, um, I found out how special I really was when my adopted father came into my room at night. I was still awake, lights were out, and he began touching me in ways that I didn't understand. And that was my life till I was 20 years old.
1: Oh my God.
0: But And during that time, I'm struggling as a small child. When I was eight, I came to the United States for the first time. And oddly enough, I began watching the Perry Mason show. And every lawyer has watched the Perry Mason show, I'm sure. But for me at eight and living in that environment, um, Perry Mason was the only person over weeks that I learned to trust. I had no one to trust by the time I was eight, No one by six, no one to trust, no one to turn to. Many years later, I found out my adoptive mother had shown symptoms of battered women syndrome, which I didn't understand then either. But as an adult, after I became a lawyer, I read this first book that written on the subject and I went, oh my gosh, this was my mother in so many ways. So she couldn't protect me either. Yeah. So at eight, I'm watching Perry Mason every week. People will come in and you're the only one I can trust. You're the only one I can turn to week after week after week. So here I am a little eight-year-old girl and I decided Perry Mason was my idol. I'm going to trust Perry Mason. Religiously watched him every week. And over time, I decided I wanted to be Perry Mason. I wanted to be that person that the client could turn to, the client could trust and so from that time forward, my dream was to become an attorney and be my client's Perry Mason. And as you can imagine with that kind of background, I don't all of a sudden just go to school, go to college, go to law school. My road was very convoluted to get yeah. to law school. And I married young. I had my son. And then um, I worked in a, finally got to work in a law office and I became a self-made paralegal then a law office. You came to
1: California when you moved here? Yeah,
0: eventually I came to California and that wasn't a straight route either. I was kind of all over the place before I ended up here. But I came to California and worked in a law office and I became the lead secretary, the lead paralegal office administrator. It didn't matter what was thrown at me. I would study and learn. And then I got divorced, then met my current husband, who's an attorney, and we got married. And he said, you know, you always wanted to be a lawyer. Why don't you go to law school? So I went at night, went to law school at night, became a lawyer. And as soon as I got sworn in, we became tone and tone attorneys at law. And um, wow. that's how I became a lawyer. And I was, I loved moot court, which was appellate work in law school. So I knew I was always going to do appellate work. And um, what really got me to become exclusively an appellate law specialist was after working Years in San Jose, California, and our practice there, we moved to Truckee, California to get closer to our ski resort because we're both skiers. Ah. And living here allowed me to remotely work. And that was in 1996, before anybody was really remote working. And I developed a practice working remotely and with all my library online. And so when COVID hit, it was like nothing changed for me. That's how I've been doing things. (laughs)
1: Well wow, that's a fantastic story. That is do you, have any, do you have any siblings?
0: No, I don't have I I believe from my natural father I may have a couple of half brothers on the east coast but otherwise no I don't have any other no siblings I was an only child growing up and uh and so it, you know it's I have to say despite the difficulty of living in that environment until I was 20 years old. And my parents did provide for me. They you know, allow me to go to good schools and get an education. My mother was very strict about my education. And I mentioned that I'm surfing now, but when I was growing up, she didn't want me involved in sports. And we fought about my being you know, on the tennis team. She wanted me on the debate team. She wanted me on the science club. Um, she wanted me to do all the academic work. And she thought there wasn't much value in athletics. And I always wanted to be an athlete. So I'm now living my life backwards. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that's excellent. Um, do you have any, and will you say, how many children you have? You said you mentioned- I have
0: one home. of my own. I have two stepchildren from my, my husband. Okay. And one of my own. And what does your own do? My own, actually right now, he's a strategic military planner for the U.S. Air Force living in Germany. Wow. And he was supposed to be an Air Force pilot, but that was enough. That's another trauma story in my life. He was 24 years old, and I got that phone call that no parent wants. There's been an accident. He's in New Zealand on his dream ski vacation. And I get the call, and uh, he's suffered a severe traumatic brain injury. Ooh. And I flew to New Zealand, and they told me he'd be a vegetable the rest of his life. And I'm not one to give up at the beginning of a journey. So I refused to accept the prognosis and uh, it took us a good solid 10 years. He, um, he miraculously had a full recovery, wow. but that, it, that journey is what led me to neuroscience because we started reading all the new studies. What were they learning about the brain and started implementing practices from all the new studies. And that led me to emotional intelligence, which eventually led me to some of the things that I do now Helping educate attorneys on the value of integrating emotional intelligence into their life and into their practice, into their ethics, so that they could actually live a life, you know, of with less stress and more life integration. You know, how does an attorney who practices appellate law, even though remotely, do I get to spend half of the year surfing in Hawaii? That's what I do. And it required. Listening to myself on how I was helping my son recover and taking the advice that I was helping him to recover and taking it myself, which is reduce stress, get rid of the things that that do not help you. And I think attorneys, we have a stressful profession anyway, so you can't eliminate all stress, but you can certainly eliminate a lot of the stressors in your life that you don't think are stressing you out.
1: Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, everyone, a lot of people battle with stress. I mean, I mean, I'm not sure it has anything. It's not, I don't think it's less about external forces as it is about the way you perceive the world. Right.
0: I believe so. Yes. Yes, it is. And, and one of the things that I teach, I learned this from my son through his recovery. One day he was in the brain injury rehabilitation unit in Palo Alto. And I come in and he's doing this with this little thing on his on his arm and I go, what's the matter? And my son's name is Kevin and Kevin says, they gave me this watch that does me no good. And what he was looking at was a monitor on his wrist, it had a band like a watch, a little block on it like a watch. He was severely brain injured at the time. And this monitor would cause alarms to go off if he left the unit. So, uh, but to him, it felt like a watch, looked like a watch, must be a watch, but there was no face on it. So it was a watch that did him no good because it didn't tell time. And eventually, my husband and I began using the phrase, it's a wash that does you no good, to remind each other of getting upset or spending too much life energy or brain bandwidth on things that did not have any purpose in our life, other than to aggravate us.
1: Right.
0: Right. And, um and so the example I give is over even little tiny things. And so my husband makes the best sandwiches in the world. Every bite has got everything in it and, and they're so good. And so he would make a sandwich, cut it, turn his back. He doesn't do this anymore. I would walk by, take a bite and keep walking. And he would turn, see the bite gone and say, hey, you took a bite out of my sandwich. And I would turn to him and say, well, that's a watch that does you no good. <laughs> and he would take, he would just shake his head, take a sandwich and walk away and not fret over it anymore. And I think that is, it's changing your perception about things that happened around you. And um, I've taught a stress management course for lawyers pointing out how many things that happen in a day before you even get to your office, that by perceiving things in a way that allows Your environment to create angst in you, you create, you allow stress to enter your life. So by the time you even get to your office, you're already in extreme stress. You know, like you spill coffee in the car that adds stress to your day. You have an argument with your spouse as you're walking out the door, adds stress to your day. Your spouse yells out, don't forget, Johnny's got a soccer game at four o'clock. And already you're thinking, there's no way I'm going to get out of that deposition by four o'clock. All these little things add up. So by the time you get to your office and your secretary hands you 25 messages from clients, (laughs) you're, you know, this is not even nine o'clock in the morning and you just find, then you get a a decision in the mail where your client has lost the motion that you argued last week. I mean, by nine o'clock, you're ready to explode. Even if not extremely explode outwardly inside, you're just feeling depressed, suppressed, oppressed somehow. And this kind of stress eats away at our brains, eats away at our gut, eats away at our being, our total emotional being and our physical being. And it's no wonder that right now, um, lawyers have some of the highest rate of depression leading to suicide. Um, They have no life of their their own. Um, They're having difficulty getting from week to week, day to day, and with no end in sight. And so it's taking the focus and shifting the focus and recognizing so many things that you give energy to that inhibit your ability, your brain's ability to deal with the important things in life.
1: Yeah, no, I, uh, I've read a lot of stuff about uh, the brain sort of going through my own things and the brain is uh, very plastic. You can change it, it takes a lot of work. Right. Um, so that's great, the work you're doing.
0: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I do get a lot of positive feedback from people they, when they learn some of these little things can make a big difference in their lives. But you, like you say, it, it requires some commitment on everybody's part to oh, say,
1: yep. my
0: health, my life, my being has priority. And that's what it takes. Yes. So
1: Very interesting. That's quite a story. Um, do you speak Japanese?
0: I do some. Uh, my mother, my adopted mother stopped speaking Japanese to me when I was five because she has such a strong accent. She was afraid I would have an accent, but um, it was my first language.
1: Oh, it was. Okay.
0: So it's there somewhere. And I, now that I spend so much time in Hawaii, I meet a lot of people who speak Japanese. So I get a chance to practice a little bit. So it it's better. Every time I go to Hawaii, it gets a little better.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I'm um would hawaii sort of the midpoint between
0: yes i would tell you hawaii is the one place in the world that i found after many many years where i feel the most comfortable and it's because i'm of mixed ethnic groups and most everybody in hawaii is a mixed ethnic group is as well yeah so when i show up in hawaii i'm i often people think I look like I belong there. I look like I'm a local. I feel very comfortable. And most of my life, I've always been kind of an outsider. You know, I don't look Japanese. So I'm an outsider there. I'm not Caucasian. So when I go to schools that are predominantly Caucasian or um, just basically what you might think of typical American yeah. and it's not heavily Asian, even I just don't fit in any of these groups. So when I went to Hawaii, I, I, the first time I went there, the stewardess said to me, oh, welcome home. And I didn't know what yeah. she was talking about. I got off the plane. And I looked around and went, oh, I get it. Everybody's mixed up around here, just like me.
1: That's pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, that that's quite a statement you made. Maybe you don't even realize what you said there. But the way you said it is like such an oxymoron with what the United States is supposed to be. You don't fit into a group well. Right. Yeah. Right.
0: Yes, and yeah, um, it, 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 indeed. In fact, one of the courses that I've, I've taught lawyers is the implicit bias course, it which is about that. And uh, when implicit bias became such a big part of the legal world, well, the whole world, you know, about inclusion yeah. and diversity and that sort of thing, I really um, associated myself with it and identified with it because of that that I had personal experiences of implicit bias and recognizing that nobody meant anything harmful towards me, but it's that built into us because of how we were raised in uh, the environment we grew up in. And one of the examples that I give is, when I first went to California, I lived, I moved to San Jose and um, I, I had you know long dark hair and this kind of mixed look. And there's a lot is a large Hispanic population in South. Right, right, right. And these Hispanic women would come up to me and start speaking Spanish, and I took French in school, so I did not speak a lick of Spanish. And I would just say, "I know Spanish, sorry." And I got kind of um, scolded a couple of times that I was not upholding my heritage and not speaking Spanish. And when I said, "I'm not Spanish, I'm half Japanese," they were kind of taken aback. But I knew at that time that I didn't know it was implicit bias then. Mm. I know that to be the case now. But I knew then these women weren't trying to um, be disrespectful. They just made assumptions based on their life experience. Sure, I knew that they didn't mean any disrespect. But it was a bit off-putting for me to have that happen. Uh, Today, I can look back and, and recognize why it happened. And this is... The this is the study of implicit bias. Is why does that happen, and why do we all have it? I mean, we all have some implicit bias in many ways. Well, I mean, let's even recognize.
1: Yeah, I mean, the as the expression goes, we're a product of our environment. You know, if you have less exposure than others, then the way you view the world is going to be very different than someone who's a world traveler has been exposed to lots and lots of different types of people, right?
0: That's so true, it is, it is so true. And I feel like I've at least had that, you know, I was fortunate to be that one person on the outside all the time. So I experienced a lot of implicit bias coming towards me. Um, you know, I was a child, we were traveling across the United States and we were, we stopped somewhere, uh, somewhere between Oklahoma and North Carolina. And um, a gentleman came up to us and said, what tribe is she from? like, <laughs> okay you know and i didn't think of any uh, much about it then i think i was 8 years old but um today i look back on that and like, go what try but again no disrespect intended it's just how they were raised and what they know and what they were what they were exposed to and today i think with the world getting smaller with all of the uh, electronics and the internet and, and all that it becomes easier i think to point the finger to somebody saying you know you shouldn't have this smaller mindset, but it's not a question of exposure as an adult to the internet. It's what they were exposed to for if they're 20, 20 years of their life or 30, the first 25 years of their life. What was that? And I think it would be more helpful to recognize that everybody has this implicit bias and to not be judgmental by, by it, but just recognize it's there where you know how does it help us? Because our brains do this because it has helped us survive as a species. But then how can we overcome it to be more inclusive without making people feel that they're doing something wrong? And my course that I developed was to try to not. One of the comments actually I had was that a gentleman was pleasantly surprised that it wasn't pointing the finger at the usual suspects of the attack by implicit bias, and I think that even those who do that operate from a level of implicit bias. They're not trying to be attacking, but sometimes it's you know how we say things, not what we say.
1: <laughs> yeah, but. well, I mean that's why it's interesting. You, you, as you said, Japan's homogeneous. I mean, even though we're supposed to be a melting pot, you know, people of like interests, ethnic back they tend to bond together, right? I mean, we, that's just natural yeah. that people do that.
0: It is very natural. And I think we have to start with that, that it's very natural. It's normal. It's how our brains are built. And if we start from that, then it's not because somebody's evil. And I think it's important that we recognize nobody's evil. It's its how our brains are built. Right. And you know, if you think about living in caves and somebody who looked a little different from you came, you didn't know if they were a friend or foe. So you had to be careful, if not, your entire tribe could be demolished by morning. And so that, that's how our brains, those who survived, had a very careful, discerning mind to exclude.
1: Right. So Danger, about- right? We're wired to think negatively as a protective mechanism.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, know. I, I,
1: yeah I, I, I mean, I'm not as conversant as you, but I, I, I find it very interesting. I've done a lot of reading about it myself. And uh, so it, it's quite interesting, and uh, it, that's why I I, I like this I mean, I think the the American experiment, let's call it that, was really kind of doomed for failure anyway from the very beginning.
0: It it is because it it opposes it. Pre, it almost pretends that agoraphobia or fear of the foreigner, fear of that, is unnatural, or bad. Right. And when it's natural and. I, I don't look at it as good or bad. And, and that's coming from me, who have always felt like the outsider. And it, and it, it's crummy to feel like the outsider on a regular basis. Yeah, but you well. recognize
1: it now, you understand it.
0: Right, and I think education is how we get by this so that people can then take the information, take the education, and then make improvements in their lives, in their environment, in their communities and to extend the arm of friendship. But at the same time, I don't think I would want humanity to erase this part of our brain because it is important. Right. You know, I mean, if you, if, even today, if you were in a community and let's say even a diverse community uh, in a housing area and you kind of know everybody around there and all of a sudden somebody shows up who looks like a complete stranger and they don't look and dress like, you know, should you be a little suspicious? I would hope so. You know, you don't need to shoot them, but maybe be a little suspicious, well, yeah. get some information, right? Yeah, it's- you're right.
1: Sure. That, yeah. that gets into the whole, like a, a lot of the, uh, you know, I mean, you could say that about police work too, with profiling, right? I mean, this, you know, this yes. conditioning, people react based on the way they've been conditioned, right? Yeah. And based on experience.
0: Right. And the only way I think to get around that is education. Yeah is to be able to look within yourself. And this is what you know. eventually led me to emotional intelligence and the value of that. To me, the value of emotional intelligence is multifaceted. Uh, it not only provides you with a way of um, looking at your own life and having better perspective on managing your own stress or managing your own environment, but also to look outward and say, okay, how can I improve my total environment, my environment for my children. Um, How do I relate better to people? How can I be more discerning when I meet a stranger? Is this friend or foe? What other information can I gather that's going to help me without just reacting based on how I was raised? Yeah. I think Mm -hmm. it's developing those tools. And I would, you know, anytime I see a program that helps build those tools for people, and helps them build those tools. I'm all for it because I think the more tools we have to deal with what's coming at us, the better we can respond instead of react.
1: Let's break on that. I want to continue that discussion because I'm gonna I'm gonna run out of time. But um, I want to put a wrap on this. I want to come back to you on that. But um, just to to finish this up for now, um, if someone wants to get in touch with you and learn more about uh, the work you do, what's the best way? to connect with you
0: Uh, probably my website francinetone.com it's my name.com it's easy and there's my phone number my address email they can reach me anyways
1: okay excellent so this is a Francine Tone from the firm Tone and Tone in uh, northern California she does appellate work uh, former trial lawyer and very interesting person and uh, thank you for spending time with us this is this is a uh, sponsored by Emotion Track, which is a legal tech platform, as we discussed, uh, captures emotional analytics that trial lawyers use to prepare for trial or mediation. And uh, thank you very much, Francine.
0: Thank you, Jonathan.